1 Peter 3, 8 through 22. I'll be reading that for us today. It says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, and tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and the ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who has asked you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which He went, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, and were brought safely through the water. Oh, Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to Him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, how many of you have sat in a meeting at work or you have been present at a family meeting in your house that during that time you have really sat there and said most of what is being talked about has absolutely nothing to do with me. If you're lucky, perhaps you're in that uh, meeting at home or you're in that meeting at work and it's been gathered in and the leader, the, the uh, person who's called that meeting is speaking about things and you recognize that people are getting in trouble. People are, are, are being told that they have slacked in some duty that they're required to do. But in the back of your mind, in the back of your heart, you're thinking to yourself, they're not talking to me. Thank goodness they're not talking to me. Oh, thank you, Lord, that they're not talking to me. And so perhaps over the last three Sundays, as we've talked about being residents, as we've talked about being slaves or servants, or as we've talked about being a wife or a husband, you've thought to yourself, yeah, that's all good, and I'm glad there's some principles there that I'm picking up, but really that has nothing to do with me. Now imagine you're one of the receivers of this letter for the very first time. 
that you're sitting there in your house and you're being read this letter from Peter who's saying to you these things. And all along you've been tracking and then all of a sudden he starts talking about residents and slaves and you go, well, I'm not a slave and a husband and wife and you think you're not a husband and a wife and you think to yourself, well, I don't need to listen to this anymore. That's not for me. Well, that's where Peter now comes in. <laughs> so he's been talking about things that might not be for you. Now, just as an aside, we recognize that those things that we've talked about the last three weeks are for all of us, right? Yeah? Good. Can I get some head nods? At least an amen, maybe. That would be helpful. Amen. There you go. There you go. Where we come to now, though, is Peter says this. Finally, all of you. It's like a wake-up call to those who maybe have drifted off. It, not that that happens here. It's like a wake-up call to those who have thought, well, this isn't about me. This isn't pertinent for my life. That this is not for me. He's saying, finally, all of you, everyone in the room, everyone that's receiving this letter, everyone who will ever hear this letter, all of you, which is good for us because here we see Peter laying out the characteristics of what those who have their identity in Christ look like, how they operate, and how they live. So, for those of us who are in Christ, those of us who have received by grace the call and adoption to be his sons and daughters, when we hear these things and these callings, these verses, what we're seeing is who we are. These are not aspirational. These are not things that are like, if you can get five out of six of these. What he's saying is, here's who you are. Do you be doing these things. This is what you should be on about. And for those of you who perhaps are here and you've not stepped into that, you've not believed in Jesus and who he is, maybe hopefully what you see here is a, a picture being painted for you of who you can be. Uh, not even who you can be, but who you were designed to be by the God who is in a constant, relentless, loving pursuit of you to bring you back into whole relationship with him who says, I know who you are. I know your heart. I know your mind. I'm the one who created you. Let me bring you back into whole relationship, truth relationship with me, with yourself, with all others and with place. And so when we dive into this, what we're going to see is some characteristics or some, uh, uh, some listings of attitudes and actions that we who are in Christ should be doing. And hopefully what you see, if you're not there yet, is what you could be about, what you could be on about. And let me tell you, it paints a beautiful picture of mercy and grace and truth. Something that if you listen to the newscasters and you listen to people in culture today, they're saying we desperately need what is talked about here. That if we could just return to these things, civility and honesty and looking out for other people. And Peter's like, all of you, finally, all of you. So we're going to see those things. Then we're going to get a warning. He gives us encouragement and then Peter gives us a warning. And then at the end we see the answer. The answer. So let's look at what we're called to be on about. Who are we supposed to be? He says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, have sympathy, have brotherly love, have a tender heart and a humble mind. 
Don't repay evil with evil or reviling, but instead bless. That's all in verses 8 and 9. And then if we jump forward, he says this, when we're called to, to give a reason for our hope, he says, always be ready, but do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. So the first thing that we recognize is this idea that there is unity of mind, and then if you step down, there is a humble mind. Well, that means it's how we think. It's what we are on about. It's what we are focused on and what we are moving. How we gain unity of mind, our humble mind, is that we recognize that God is higher than all of us. See, that humble mind comes from the place where we remove ourselves off the throne of our heart and we place God on the throne of our heart. And we don't actually place God on the throne of our heart. We actually just recognize Him as the throne of our heart. And when we do that, it lowers our expectations of ourselves. It says that I'm no longer the one who gets to decide everything about my life. I'm no longer the one that has to move into a place of being pleased with how life is going for me. It means that I recognize that God is higher and that he has a plan and a purpose and he is moving and doing things. And in that then, as I gather around other people, that I can be of like mind. Because we gather together and say, do you believe that God is the ruler of the universe? Do you believe that God has control of all things? Do you believe that God is the one who sits on the thrones of our lives? That he's in relentless, constant, loving pursuit of us so that we can be in whole relationship with him? If you do, then we are alike and aligned. The beautiful thing about that is it really gives us the essentials of gathering together as the body of Christ. And so that if things don't fit into those essential things of who Jesus is and what he has done and how he is the epitome of who God is and his loving pursuit for us, then we can just let those go. But we can have unity of mind about that thing. So we have unity of mind and we have a humble mind because we recognize who God is. But then it says that we have sympathy, brotherly love, and a tender heart. So it means we're thinking rightly and that we are feeling or acting correctly we are moving in the place where we recognize that we are humble that we are tender that we are sympathetic Paul put it this way that we cry with those who cries that we have anguish with those who have anguish and that we rejoice with those who rejoice and so that as followers of Jesus somehow we're in this constant sort of dance where we are always joyful and always sorrowful because within our body there are those who are hurting and there are those who are celebrating and it's a beautiful thing because we know that we have sympathy towards them and we have mercy towards them. But not just that, we receive that sympathy and we receive that mercy, that tender heart. The next thing we see there is that we don't repay evil for evil, but that we step in with blessing. And if you remember, over the last three weeks, we've talked about the fact that submission is actually an act of blessing. And here he's saying to us again, look, when evil comes to you, when you're being bad-mouthed or slandered, you don't return it in that way. We recall he using the example of Jesus himself in chapter 2, talking about how he has suffered, but he did not speak against, he did not 
move towards. He did not revile them in return. He says the same to us. That we actually should be people who move towards blessing. And the only way that we can do that is if we begin to have the same posture and mindset that the Father has for His creation. And that's a posture of delight. That He can't get enough. That He longs to see it. And so even when we are being portrayed as wrong, or even when we are falsely accused, or even when evil is being spoken against us, we look out and we say... How can I delight in you? How can I find the beautiful thing that God has created in you and given you? Yes, you're fallen. Yes, you're sinful. But guess what? So am I. And the beauty is that God finds His delight in me and He can find His delight in others. And all I have to do is open my heart, mind, soul to see how God is doing that. One of the first ways that we have to move in that place of a walk of delight is that we have to first step into repentance ourselves. We have to first step in repentance and say, I'm so quick to to promote evil against other people. We wouldn't say it that way, would we? (laughs) But we are. We're so quick to tear people down. We're so quick to elevate our own desires over other people's desires. We're so quick to point out where they've done things, where they're wrong, but... We don't look at our own hearts. And if we're going to move to a place of delight, we have to move to a place of repentance that says it's only because I have been forgiven that I'm able to stand up in who I am in my truth identity of Jesus. And because of that, I'm able to move into repentance and delight to those around me so that I can be a blessing. Now, sometimes that blessing of people is pointing out the places where they're wrong. That's a hard place to step. I would dare say most of us avoid it. Because we're nervous and we want to be liked. And guess what? Just at that point, at that moment, we've taken God away. And we've stopped delighting in them. And we've delighted in ourselves. Because we want them to like us. Aren't I delightful? So sometimes it's the hard task of blessing others by saying to them, Here's where you are missing it. Here's where your heart is elevated above God's heart. And usually we have to start that conversation by this. Please forgive me. Because I've known you've been walking in this way. And I've neglected telling you for fear you wouldn't like me anymore. I've delighted in myself and not delighted in the Father. Forgive me. Now, how can I help you walk through this? That's being the blessing. That's stepping in and submitting and saying, I am one of you. (laughs) I recognize that I am fallen, but that I am the delight of the Father, and you are as well. He quotes there Psalm 34, 
where he says, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and let his lips from speaking deceit. He's saying, look, this isn't anything new. This is something that God's always been about. This is something that God has been on about since the foundation of the world. That it's living this type of life out of the outgrowth of recognizing what God has done not in order to get and receive God's grace, not in order to get and receive salvation, but because it's happened, because I'm already in the presence of God, that I then am able to step into this place. I, I want to take just a brief moment to talk about this idea of gentleness and respect when we give out this call for hope. And we'll come to that, but first we need to recognize that it sets within this warning that we have. You see, because what Peter says to us is that when we begin to live so counterculturally, when we begin to live as people that are for others as opposed to for self first, what happens is those who live for self first have two responses. They either push against it or they run towards it. What happens when we begin to live towards others is we are the sweet aroma of Christ and they begin to smell it and they either want to smell it more or they want to get it out of their nose. And we have two responses that take place. One is they slander us or they push evil against us or they speak ill of us or they discount us or where it is I believe today in society is they have complete and other apathy towards us. And they say, it doesn't even matter. What do you think? You don't even play a part in the way culture is moving or acting. You don't even play a part in what is going on. Why would you even? They don't even ask, why would you even? It's just not even a thought anymore. And our response tends to be, and we're not going to think about you. <laughs> we're not going to care about you. As a matter of fact, we're pretty apathetic. We'll wash our hands and be gone. However, others will engage. However, others will step in and say, why is it that you're that way? What is it that makes you continue to feel and move and proclaim and live in hope? And Peter says we have to be ready to give a defense. Now that word sort of sounds like it's, right? Defense. But then he tells us how gentleness, right, and respect. So for those of us who find delight in those that God finds delight in, for those of us who the gospel life and our identity is so grounded in Christ, is when we are questioned or asked, we respond with giving blessing or we respond with respect. And we give an answer for our hope. Uh, but we can't just give an answer by setting out five-point propositional truths to them and say, do you get truth number one? Because if you get truth number one, then we can move to truth number two. And if you get truth number two, then we can move to truth number three. And if you get truth number three, then we can... But if you don't get truth number two, then we're going to have to spend some more time there. My goodness, aren't you smart enough to catch on to this yet? Isn't it obvious in the world and the way that it's created and the way that we see it that these things are truths? 
all those truths, whatever they may be, in your mind that you put there, right there, as I was talking about truths, they might be truth. <laughs> and, in fact, they probably do need to know them, as I need to be reminded and know them. But if we start with truths and them assenting to the propositional belief that they are real, then we miss the point of the Savior. Because the Savior says, I didn't come for just your mind. I came for your heart and your soul and your strength. I don't want you just to love me with your mind. I want you to love me body and soul. Everything about you needs to love me. That's why I came in flesh to be present, to show you what it's like to have God here when he shows up. And so it's not just about those truths. It's not just about apology, apologetic, or defense. It's about stepping in and saying, where are you at? What are the questions that really underlie that question? How do I get to know you and how God created you and what he's doing in your life? How do I spend time so that you recognize, in fact, know that Jesus is working among you and in you to draw you to himself? How do I encourage you in that way? How do I love you? And we move in respect and gentleness in that way. Now, hopefully for some of you who like those propositional truths and you like the way that those go, is that God continues to bring people into your life who need to know those propositional truths and the way they need to go. Because here's the great thing, God knows you too. God knows how you interact with people. God knows how he designed your heart and your mind and your soul. And sometimes he gives you folks and gives you situations that move you outside of your comfort zone. And sometimes God gives you places where you can run straight into how you've been designed. But in all those things, we must remember first and foremost that it is God who is doing the work that it is God who is transforming hearts, that it is God who has the ultimate responsibility to bring his children to himself, and that the work I do, while it might seem of utmost importance, it is God who is doing that work. And so I don't need to get down on myself when I'm not quite sure I know the right answer. I need to trust that the Father is working because he's the one who has set that divine appointment. He's the one who has allowed that conversation to happen. And he's the one who has kept that sweet aroma of Christ wafting into those, uh, the nose of that person and them not wanting to get rid of it. Them wanting to have it still be there. And so let me encourage you, if you are smelling the sweet aroma of Jesus and you're wondering what that is, ask questions. If you're ever in a place that says you can't ask questions, find another place. Ask questions. Ask, what about this? Or how about this? Why is this happening? I would recommend that you be careful with who you ask questions to, but ask questions. Allow them to speak God's truth to you as it comes from Scripture, as it is recognized in the personhood of Jesus Christ. And allow them to walk with you on the path of what we hope is you continuing to smell life from God and stepping into it so that you can in turn then be a blessing to those around you.
So we've seen how we're supposed to act. We're seen how we're supposed to live. And we know that there are going to be two responses to that, either pushing away or coming towards. And so we must be ready for those things. We're ready for that, recognizing that the life of a follower of Jesus is one of suffering. It's one of suffering. Too often in our world today, we're quick to recognize that we don't need suffering. Rosaria Butterfield, who had a conversion late in life, she was a professor uh, who came to know Jesus because of radical hospitality that was given towards her. And in her life, she says this, when there were people who were saying, you don't have to change the way you are or who you are in order to step into a relationship with Jesus. This is what she said to that. No, when we step into a relationship with Jesus, we have to give up everything. How true that is. I lose all of my identity. I lose everything that I have built up as a way that I recognize, recognize myself in order to be recognized in Christ, in Christ alone. And that's the reason why Peter steps in here and tells us again about Jesus. You know, when I was growing up, my dad was a pastor, still is a pastor. And it was interesting because a lot of times I would ask him a question and his answer would be Jesus. As a matter of fact, in everything that he said, Jesus was always the answer. That would be his first number one. Now, sometimes that's because he didn't understand the algebraic uh, problem that I was having, and he thought, well, I'll just say Jesus, and that way I can move on and show him that I don't understand that algebra problem. Most of the time, though, is because the fact was Jesus was the answer. Now, he would be silly about it, too, and he would say, you know, one plus one equals two, and two is Jesus. And you would go, well, <laughs> what does that mean? And he would line out, well, that there's God and there's Jesus. Well, and then there's the Holy Spirit. So one plus one plus one is three. And then he would turn it into some conversation about Jesus and the Trinity. But here what Peter is saying is, you're going to feel like there are hard things going on. As a matter of fact, in these two responses that you're going to receive, that of pushing away or that of coming towards to ask questions, it's going to be hard on you. That when we begin to move into a place where our true identity, the truth of who we are, is not what we thought, but it is exactly who Jesus Christ is, it's going to be difficult. And since that's the case, you need to know the answer. And the answer is Jesus. Jesus did it. It's done. Already. And you're in it. And that's what Peter says to us here. Look. For Christ also suffered... Once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He became unrighteous so we could be righteous and be brought to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Oh, the beautifulness of this simple verse. How we see the Trinitarian Father working his loving pursuit for us in it. Christ, the Son, suffered that he might bring us to God the Father and he is made alive in his resurrection through the Spirit. How beautiful are those words to those of us who know there is no hope except for the hope that God has completed the task and has done it and we are now in him completely. And then we skip down and we see that he says this, that then Jesus through his resurrection 
has gone to heaven and is at the right hand of God. It reminds us not only did Christ suffer, but that Christ is victorious. That in this place, that if we stop proclaiming and living in a place that says, above all else, Christ is victorious. Not victorious like a conquering soldier or a general who takes captives, but one who brings captives into his robe and brings them into the glory of God. Who says, you're not a servant or a slave or a prisoner of war anymore. No, my captivity is one of love. My captivity is one of family. My captivity is one where you are with me and in me. He is victorious, but not in a way that we should set up some statue and say yes and propagate him, but one that says, I've come as a servant to bring you home. You were far off. You were an exile, but you are also an heir. And we remember that from the first sermon that we preached in 1 Peter. He stands and proclaims his victory. And what it does for us is it gives us courage and resilience to live in a world that doesn't recognize it. But we live in such a way in order to bring people to it. In his commentary on this, Erland Waltner talks about how 1 Peter is really about this peaceable community. And he says that it's a witnessing community. He puts it this way. Out of our living hope, grounded on God's act of raising Jesus, not only salvation, but in a non-retaliating, peacemaking love way, that in that it becomes possible for us to live in this hope. It says that our community is now a community of hope that is in the midst of a hostile world. A community of forgiving love in a violent world. A community of witness and of service in the midst of those who misunderstand and misinterpret and witness and mistreat them. They're not to remain silent or inactive in such a world, but are to speak and to proclaim, to confront evil with truth and love, even as they turn from it. They are to live and witness in a spirit and a manner that is congruent, aligned with the non-retaliating, peacemaking love of Jesus Christ. That's who we are. That's what Peter says here. Finally, all of you. All of you who are in me. All of you who are in Christ. All of you should be living together as those who are proclaiming the hope of Jesus, that He has come to seek and to save those who are lost. May God cause us to be that, because He has. Let's pray. Father, You are good to us. We praise You. You continue to make us into your children more and more. You continue to move us into our identity with who Jesus is. Please, Father, have mercy on us when we forsake that. Lord, we pray that today these words will be your words, that they will bring glory and honor to you, and that if they're not, 
that they will cease and blow away. It is in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.